John chapter 13, we'll read the entire chapter. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from table, from supper, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After he had poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded, then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, and said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for I am, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I sent receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I have said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, whither I go, thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall crow, shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words. We pray thee, Lord, that you would open them up to us, that we might appreciate all that thou hast done, and in particular, who thou art, and the great love which with thou hast loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wanted to talk first about um, Judas' betrayal. Scattered throughout this whole section of the scripture here, he's speaking about his love for the disciples. And there's a, a wonderful section that I want to cover here about how we should love each other as the Lord loved us. And last week I'd made mention of the fact that um, John was uh, reclining on the bosom of the Lord. And that verse there mentions that um, in verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Had there been two disciples leaning on his bosom, he would have said, two disciples whom Jesus loved. And last week, as, as you should recall, we talked about how Jesus loves everybody that he died for. And that uh, was symbolized by the high priest wearing on the breastplate the 12 stones upon which names the 12 tribes were engraved. And so we are always, the Lord always bears us upon his heart. So in a context here, we are all, in a spiritual sense, reclining on the bosom of the Lord. And so I want us to appreciate again that the Lord loves us uh, all. He shed his life for all of us. And as there's no greater love than a man do this than he lay down his life for his friends. And the Lord has done that. He has laid it down not only corporately for the church, but individually for each one of us. So that's a manifestation of his love here. But I want to talk about the betrayal of, of Judas. Um, I was listening to a sermon last week, um, and it was said again about how because man sinned, that God had to set in motion this process of salvation as though it was plan B. The original plan would be that God would be eternally in fellowship with Adam and Eve and all of the people that came from them. And then the fact that Adam sinned like was a surprise and therefore plan B swings into action. And I, I really don't like it when I hear that because it would suggest that God is not in control of everything if not for even a moment. And uh, we know that by him all things consist. And uh, he is very much sovereign over everything. Everything goes exactly the way God intended it to go. So in, in verses 1 through 3 here, we should appreciate the Lord is talking about where he's come from and where he's going, and that he has loved all of his people unto the end, even through the foolishness of Peter uh, denying him. The Lord loved him unto the end, meaning up to the end point where he goes to the cross and the church is glorified in him by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection. In verse 2, it talks about here, of course, the Holy Ghost. God is the author of the Bible. It talks about how the devil has 
put into Simon's, uh, into Judas Iscariot's heart that he would betray him. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he's come from God and that he's going to God, Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. Um, from before the foundation of the world, everything has been laid out. Verse 11, he says, for he knew, speaking of Jesus, who should betray him. Well, of course he knows who's going to betray him. Then you get over to verse 18, and the Lord is speaking here. He says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Um, Verse 19, now I tell you before it come, that when it, it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am. He's using language indicative that he is God. He's using the great the term that God told Moses who he was, I am that I am. So I intentionally left off the word he there because it's in italics, it's not in the Greek. It says that ye may know that I am. So the Lord here is quoting from Psalm 41, verse 9, where it talks about how he is going to be uh, betrayed. And in the context of that, the Lord is saying, hey, this has been written. I'm not just telling you now what has happened. I mean, it's been told beforehand what is, what is going to happen. In Matthew chapter 16, you'll recall that, that Jesus had told the disciples um, very clearly in verses 21 and 22. This was after Peter made the confession that God said, that Jesus said that God had revealed to Peter that Jesus is, in fact, um, the Christ. In verse 21, it says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. It's not like he's going to be taken up to Jerusalem against his will, but he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Well, Peter doesn't understand what that's all about, so what does he do here? He took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from thee, Lord, that this shall not be unto thee, as though Jesus might not um, uh, as though what is happening to him would be contrary to Jesus's will and that he might need some help to prevent this awful thing from happening unto him. But he's, he's already used the word must. I must go to Jerusalem. Verse 23, he, uh, Jesus turns and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those things of men. In other words, Peter's concerned about life. He wants to cling to this world. He wants to cling to life. And he would assume that Jesus wants to do the same thing. That's not what the Lord says. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that um, would lose his life shall gain it. So there's a different context here. But the important thing is that we appreciate that Jesus has told them he must go to Jerusalem. Now over in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, again, the Lord um, tells them, gives them more details. And here he says here, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. Okay, he's talking about that in now John chapter 13, but he's already told them about it. The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. And they were exceeding sorry. Apparently they didn't hear the, and he shall rise again part, or they didn't understand what that was all about. So here, again, in John chapter 13, the Lord is setting these truths before him that you would know that I am. And so, again, as I said, the Lord quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9, about what is going to take place with respect to his betrayal. So he's told them all ahead of time through the Holy Ghost, through the Scriptures. In John 13, verse 21, 
again in the context of this betrayal here, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. So we've just gone from this general statement back in uh, in Matthew about he's going to be betrayed to now it's a little bit more focused. It's going to be one of you. One of you are going to betray me. And it talks about how his heart um, was troubled. Why would his heart be troubled? Well, there's going to be two reasons for it. One is this process is going to require him, the process of redemption is going to require him to be the recipient of all of the sins of those whom he came to save. That is a heavy burden to bear, and we're going to read about that when the Lord is in the garden and he prays and great drops, as it were, of blood come from him. And he prays thrice that the Father might remove that cup from him according to his Father's will, if there be any other way. And there was no other way. Obviously, there's no other way. This is the way it has to go. It was talked about this all the way back in Genesis, which I want to uh, look at. But his heart is troubled not for that reason in this context here, but for what we read in uh, Psalm 109. There were some terrible words there that was in Psalm 109. And we should understand that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says that in Ezekiel twice, once in Ezekiel 18, verse 31. He says, cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. Verse 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. The Lord takes no pleasure in the wickedness of of men in terms of him um, um, having vengeance against them. Uh, That's not the word I really want to use, but requiting them the recompense that is due them for the evil that they have done. There is no pleasure in that for the Lord. In Ezekiel 33, uh, verse 11, he again says that very clearly. In Ezekiel 33, 11, he says, Say unto them, speaking to Ezekiel that they would tell Israel, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? So the words that we read or that our deacon read earlier this morning in uh, Psalm 109 are very egregious words. I hope you can appreciate that. Um, Picking it up in verse days, this is speaking of Judas. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. And as it continues down here, let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord and let not the sins of his mother be blotted out. This is a very egregious um, um, series of things that the Lord is saying with respect to um, Judas. And it's troubling him because it's a reality that is going to take place. It is a reality that the Lord has set in front of us all the way back in the Psalms, and indeed all the way back in uh, Genesis chapter 3, where we're going to take a look in a few minutes here. Um, So it is troubling to the Lord um, that these things would take place. Now, the disciples don't understand what's happening here, even though he's told them clear as a bell in previous scriptures, but also what's taking place here about that one of you shall betray me. It says the disciples look one another, doubting of whom he spake. It's verse 22 of John 13. In the other scriptures, it will say that they are saying one to another, Lord, is it I? 
or saying to the Lord, Lord, is it I? They don't know who it's going to be. And I appreciate that they might have an understanding of the depths of their depravity, which they don't truly, but that they might in so much as it, it could be me. Is it going to be me that is going to do this? There's a distinction made when uh, Judas Iscariot says that he doesn't call Jesus Lord, he calls him Master. He says, Master, is it I? And so we can appreciate a little clue there because we know in 1 Corinthians that no man can call Jesus Lord except he have the Holy Ghost. So there's already the Lord is already working in the hearts of everybody here to bring all of the things that had been written aforetime to fruition. It is Peter who says that it is that we should make our calling and election sure. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And so when they're asking those kinds of questions, we can appreciate that why the Lord might use the pen of Peter to make that statement about making your calling and election sure. Lord, is it I? Lord, am I in the body of Christ? Did Jesus die for me? Do I believe that he is God manifest in flesh and that he died for my sins? Is my faith and trust exclusively in him? So these are questions that every Christian should ask themselves. But when they ask those questions, again, the focus uh, of their attention should be on, on Christ. Now, in verse 26, they ask the question, where is Judas going? So you have to ask yourself, are, are they not paying attention? Are they not listening? The Lord up in verse 26 has said, He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. So he's eating um, with all of them. But yet, in particular, when the question is asked is, which one is it going to be? He dips, and uh, in verse 26, he answers the question, it is, uh, it is, he it is to whom I have given a sop when I have dipped it. And then he dips the sop, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot. So you think they would have been able to connect the dots from verse 18 all the way down to verse 26 and appreciate that it was Judas. But again, there's a lot of conversation going on at the table, and we talked about how in the book of Luke, it talks about how there was strife associated between the men who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it, uh, perhaps they didn't hear what Jesus said about um, when he answered um, John's question about who it is. Well, it's he to whom I have given this up. So they think that perhaps um, Judas is going to go out and um, give something to the needy, or he's going to buy something against the feast. You'll recall it was Judas who made the fuss at Mary um, in the presence of Mary Magdalene when she had uh, opened up the alabaster box of the perfume, and it was he when the, he who started the issue about hey, that was worth a great deal of money. It should have been given, sold, and given to the poor. So the lesson that we should take from all of this is. Um, you don't know who's a Christian and who is not a Christian. Coming to church faithfully does not indicate that one is a Christian. Uh, they don't know what's going on with Judas here, uh, and he has had a heart evil towards the Lord, obviously, since the beginning. And yet the Lord chose him and placed him in there amongst um, the disciples. Scripture tells us that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of the Lord. Not you and not me. Things are not naked and open under the eyes of us, but they are unto the Lord. So again, we fall back on make your calling and election sure. So just primarily be concerned about your relationship with the Lord. You know, we deal with the um, beams in our own eyes and then the moat in our, our neighbor's eye. So in any event, Peter eventually figures out who it is. <laughs> and that shouldn't be uh, difficult to figure out because when you roll to Matthew or to John chapter 18, when... Uh, where we see that Judas comes with a band of men to betray the Lord. And so Peter is very brave there in that context. He takes out a sword, you know, and he's going to protect the Lord and keep the Lord from being taken. Um, but the Lord says, no, this, this must happen. I'm, I must go. Now, 
by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, Peter has received um, a double blessing of the Holy Ghost. He received one in John when the Lord breathed on him and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then he receives um, another one in, uh, in the book of Acts. Actually, he doesn't get that till chapter 2. But in chapter 1, he's received uh, the Holy Ghost. So suddenly he starts to understand Scripture. And again, we appreciate how you really cannot understand the Bible absent the Holy Ghost. God is the author of it, and you have to have in, the author's insight to understand what is set before us here. So Peter, who understood so few things, now understands and begins to quote Scripture for us. We pick up in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1, where it says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of the names together were about 120. And this is what Peter says. Men and brethren, this Scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Must needs. Now he understands. It had to take place. The scripture had to be fulfilled. Not for the sake of scripture's sake, but for what it says. These things had to happen to affect our salvation. This scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. So he's helping us to appreciate here the inspired nature of the things that David said. It came from the Holy Ghost. God is the one who's the author of this, and he has set all of these things before us here. Verse 17, for he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst of all, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Al-Sadima, which is to say the field of blood. Now he's going to tell us the Psalms that are involved here. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, which he's ascribing to David and the Holy Ghost through the Holy Ghost. Let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another He's quoting from two different psalms. He's quoting from Psalm 69, verse 25, and from Psalm 109, verse 8. And he's buttoning the two together. So we can appreciate how it's important to rightly divide the word of truth and how that God has placed different things and different truths about himself and scattered them about the scripture so that we would appreciate that the context of all of it, depending on how you connect the dots, if you connect them properly, it's always speaking about Christ. That was Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. And so we again appreciate in verse 16, these things must needs have taken place. All of these things need to have taken place. What we're seeing here is a demonstration and all that takes place of God's love. And so he sets before us here in John chapter 13, this new commandment. And so I'm going to take this back to Genesis The new commandment I give you, that ye love one another, this is why it's new, as I have loved you. That's the new commandment. You recall that the Ten Commandments can be split into two parts. You know, whether um, a certain man asks Jesus, what is the most important commandment, or what are the two most important commandments? I think he says, what's the most important commandment? And his answer is that you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind, And the second is like unto it, that ye love your neighbor as thyself. That's not what it says here, that you love one another as you love yourself. 
It says, you love one another as I have loved you. Now, that is a big difference for any man to love in that capacity. And I would say that you cannot do it absent the Holy Ghost. It requires the, that you be a, uh, a partaker of the divine nature that you might love another person as God has loved you. There are many examples uh, throughout the world where people appear to be uh, demonstrating love for other people in the context of the things that they do for them. But because man is the way he is, there's usually a narcissistic root or reason to it that people are doing something for another uh, person if for no other reason than to um, merit some grace with God, in which case there's a narcissistic reason for it. Jesus gives wholly of himself without uh, a narcissistic reason, without the expectation of getting something in return. He laid out, lays down his life and, and freely gave it for us. And so the new commandment is that we would love others as God loved us. Now, this is not a new story. This goes all the way back to Genesis. And so here again, I want us to appreciate in a, in a doctrinal context, in a theological context, that this is not plan B. This is plan A. This is the, was the way it was always set out uh, and in, intended that God would do it. And this statement about love here, that you would love others as I have loved you, is part of God's glorification, which he talks about in verse 31 and verse 32, that the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Um, so we'll get to that in a minute. So again, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we have the purpose statement that I've said many times that people overlook here. And it's about what is God's intention. It's to make people that are like him that we would be in the image and likeness of God. So he says that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's the intent of what he's going to do. Verse 27, that's not what he did. Verse 27, God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Again, I point this out. You need to read it like a lawyer. The intent is to make man in his image and likeness, in verse 27, he creates him in his image. What is required for both? You've got to be indwelled by God. What is required for that? The fall of man. Christ has got to go to the cross. And then the Holy Ghost will indwell us. So that was all part of the plan. So God sets this love story before us, starting in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 is a rather sterile statement about it. But Genesis chapter 2, we begin to see that this um, it's developed for us. In verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2 is the creation of Adam. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So there's the creation of Adam there. And then the Lord is going to begin to set a rule in front of him, set some things in front of him. Look over at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep us. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, he doesn't say if you eat. It says when you eat. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So when you read that, I don't know how you can think for a moment that God didn't know what was going to happen. And that uh, the fact that Adam ate of it, you know, uh, plan B had to kick into a uh, place here. This was all laid out 
by God. And you'll appreciate that in another moment here. Verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. So it is not good that man should be alone here. Now, who do you suppose Adam represents? He represents Christ. In um, Romans chapter 5, let me see, I wrote it down here, verse 14. It speaks of, in the context of Adam, he is a figure of him that was to come. The word figure there is this Greek word for type. Adam is a type of Christ. It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for Christ to be alone. Christ needs a bride. Who do you suppose the bride is? It's the church. So we're, but we're just talking about Adam. It's not good for him to be alone. So in verse 19, it says that God, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, it was, that was the name thereof. So God has created all of these other things on the earth and he's paraded him in front of Adam. And Adam's like, well, that's not it. <laughs> they're, they're not like me. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help made for him. All right, well, God has created everything. Um, think of the angelic host, and there's nothing there that's like him, just like he's done here. So that won't do. Verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. You do know that in the New Testament, when a person dies, they're said to sleep. So think about what took place with respect to Christ on the cross. He died on the cross. You read about that in John chapter 19. I think it's around verse 33. It specifically says that Jesus was dead on the cross and something then came out of his side. In verse 34 of John chapter 19, blood and water comes out. In other words, that's the church. So here we have Adam. And from him, it says, he was in a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. So just as the rib that comes out of Adam is used to make Eve, so too blood and water comes out of Christ to form the church. Verse 22, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, now we have something that's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Now, what's it say in verse 24? Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. It doesn't say a woman should leave her father and her mother, but a man shall. And you probably have found that to be true in your families. We found that to be true in our family. Our son might not come home for Thanksgiving. Our daughter, she's planning to host us. So we're closer to her because she has still is linked somewhat with us. She's growing closer to her husband over the years, um, which she should do. But this scripture helps us to appreciate that it is the son. It is the man that leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Now we're in Genesis chapter 13 and there's a problem here. His beloved wife, with whom he is one flesh with, has been deceived. She is in the transgression. That's what the scripture tells us, that the woman was in the transgression. Adam was first formed, then Eve, and the woman was in the, tr the transgression. She has sinned. What are the consequences for her eating of that tree? God says, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
So here you are, you're Adam. You are not corrupted by sin. You're clear thinking. Your wife, the one that is your suitable uh, help meet for you, unlike anything else, the one that is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh is going to die. What are you going to do? Are you going to say goodbye to her? Are you going to cleave to your father? Or are you going to cleave to the woman? What are you going to do? What does Adam do? He takes from the woman. He cleaves to his woman. That's what it said here to do in in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. What did Christ do? There was nothing else like him out there. Over in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3. This is after after, uh, Adam and Eve has sinned. And it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. So which one of the trinity do you suppose the man had become like? Be like Christ. Be like Christ. So that's his beloved bride. Adam and Eve is the beloved bride of, of Christ. What is he going to do? Over in Ephesians chapter 25, the Lord very clearly tells us of this, um, that we would appreciate the parallels that are taking place here. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ loves the church like Adam loved Eve, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ loved the church, which is his body. The similarity here is men love their own wives as they love their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. They're one flesh. You're one flesh with your wife. Christ loves the church like he loves himself. For no man yet ever hateth his own flesh, but nourish and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And he's going to repeat right back to Genesis chapter 2. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. And shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And if there's any question what he's talking about here, he tells us. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The parallel is, it, it should be obvious, particularly when he tells us what the truth is. As Adam was with Eve, as a man is with his wife, leaving his father, cleaving unto his wife, and becoming one flesh with her. That's what Christ did with the church. So... Again, Adam made a decision, uncorrupted by sin. I'm either going to cleave to the woman or I'm going to kiss her goodbye because she's going to the grave. He chooses to die with his wife. He chooses to cleave with his wife. He lays down his life because he loves his wife. He uh, leaves his father in heaven and he cleaves unto his wife. So here is Jesus now in John chapter 13. All these things must needs take place so you will know that I am. You will know that I am. All of the scripture testifies of Christ and that um, all of the things that he would accomplish to do that which is necessary to redeem a people unto himself. He says in verse 19, I've told you before it come to pass that you will believe that I am. Psalm 40 verse 7, you know, the Lord tells us, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Everything in scripture, the Lord is appealing to not only what he's saying in that room, but to the body of Scripture that all would teach us about 
what God's purpose, his intent was, and that he would do these things, and that this man sitting there in that room is the Almighty. He is the I Am, and everything is going to come forth just as he said it um, would do. So Adam made a decision uncorrupted in his thinking. He wasn't, uh, hadn't been corrupted by sin before he made the uh, decision. Christ sets the um, course before us of everything that he was going to do back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so here we are. It's all taking place. We should believe that he is the I am, just as he says he is. Now in verse 31, 32, and 33, he talks about how this is glorifying to both himself and to the Father. We always should appreciate what it's written in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the expressed image of his person. Everything we see in Christ is a manifestation of who the Father is. Um, All of the love that we see in Christ um, is of the Father. Uh, He and the Father are one. John 17 is going to set that forth before us very clearly here. So, again, there's great glory for what Christ is doing here. He is willfully laying down his life. He told him that back in John 10, 18, that I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. No one taketh it from me. Everything Jesus did was according to the will of the Father, which he was in perfect agreement with. Hebrews 12, 2, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. What's the joy that was set before him? It would be a relationship with you and with me. That is the joy that was set before him, that he would endure the cross and despise the shame. There is great glory in that. It's a manifestation of his love. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Christ wasn't taken against his will. When we get to John chapter 18, it's pretty obvious that he could have gotten up and walked away after he had spoken. Everybody went on their back. After he said, he's the I am, you know, they were all laying on their back. He could have walked uh, in any direction and left them um, lying there. Um, so he, was, he allowed himself to be bound and led to it like a lamb to the slaughter. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how he was obedient even unto the death of the cross. He paid the full penalty that was required of us for sin. Our guilt was imputed to him as though he were the guilty party. He ransomed the entire church in what he did. He conquered sin, he conquered death, and he destroyed the works of the devil. So what he's setting forth before us here is there's not shame in his death, there is glory in his death and all that he accomplished. And there's glory in the Father, too, because it was the Father um, who, for our justification, indicating our justification that Christ had accomplished everything, raised him from the dead, and with him he raised the entire church. You know, from Genesis chapter uh, 3, I'll start with Adam there, from Adam all the way until when the Lord comes with the second coming, all of those people would be raised with him when Christ was raised from the dead by his Father and sat on high with him and sat down in his Father's throne with him. So, all of these things that the Lord does glorify him for who he is, that he is indeed God manifest in flesh, that we would know these things. And he says before us here this wonderful example of love, that we are to love each other as he has loved us. And uh, then we're going to go into this discussion here about whether he, where is he going to go. So now we're down in, in verse 36 about him. Where I'm going, you cannot 
follow me now, um, but you can later. Well, up in verse 33, he said, whether I go, you cannot come, because he's going to the cross. And Christ went to the cross alone. Everything that he accomplished, he did exclusively by himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, your Bible should say, In verse 3, when he had by himself, other versions have taken out the word himself, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ went by himself. And so he's telling uh, Peter in verse 33, or the others there, you cannot come with me. I'm going to the cross and I'm going to go alone. And indeed, when he was in the garden and they were all scattered, he went uh, indeed by himself. Now you roll down to verse um, 36 there, and he says, Whether I go, thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. In the beginning of this section, he talked about here in John 13.1, or 13.2, about 13.3, that the Father had given all things unto him, and that he was come from God, and he went to God. Jesus is going back to the Father through the cross, Can't go with him. He's going to the cross by himself. Can't go with him to the Father now until our sins have been um, expunged from us and imputed to Christ. But then we can go with him to the Father. And he's going to develop that more uh, next week when he says that no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So can't go now yet, Peter, but you'll be able to go after I have gone to the cross and prepared a place uh, for you. So Peter, we know, is going to deny him three times (laughs) <laughs> this is after he boasts how he would lay down his life for Jesus' sake, and then he actually denies his, his uh, Savior uh, three times in order to save his own life. So he does the exact opposite here. And that's uh, just something we should appreciate when the Lord says that he loved them unto the end. In spite of Peter's um, uh, brazen speech, uh, in spite of Peter's impetuous nature and the things that he'd done in the past, you know, cutting off the ear of the... Um, fellow in the garden, but then he trembles before a maiden in the uh, courtyard outside of uh, where the Lord is being uh, heard by um, Pilate. He trembles, um, but God strengthens him, God prayed for him, and uh, God gets him the glory as he indeed does all of his saints. So we'll, um, we'll stop there and let us keep in mind here this statement here about that we are to love each other as Christ loved us. Amen. Amen.